that sets the stage for the heart of this intertestamental period, which is the Jewish Hasmoneans. The Jewish Hasmoneans. This is where everything begins to change for Israel. Everything we've been talking about is mostly the world around Israel. We haven't really talked about Judah a whole lot. And the reasons we're setting the stage for where Judah will really begin to drastically change. At this point, Judah's just, life is pretty much the same. Oppressed by foreign powers. They're, they're emphasizing the law more and more and more. Their, their government is re- highly religious. And they're splitting over whether we should compromise or whether we should oppose them. But other than that, life is pretty much just going on for them. And they are just really just Jews. But it's Antiochus IV that's going to spark the Hasmoneans that's really going to make the Jews come out as a unique and distinct culture. And it's going to grow the Jews into the culture that we know them as in the Gospels. And so everything we've done is kind of set the stage to help you understand why what happens is about to happen happens. So that we basically have set the stage for the main act. And the main act is the Jewish Hasmoneans. And Tychus III was succeeded by his son Seleucus IV. And then his other son, Antiochus IV, take the throne. He's the little horn of Daniel 7, 8, and then those chapters, who also called himself Epiphanes, God manifest. So he really believed that he was a god. Um, he was narcissistic and delusional enough to probably actually believe that he was a god. Having to pay the Roman heavy tax, Antiochus IV of Seleucus squeezed the regions in order to provide the money for the Roman tax. One of the ways he begins to do this is that Onias III was a descendant. Well, Onias III was a descendant of Zadok. He was the current high priest, which means he was the highest religious authority in the land, but also the highest political authority in the land. He was president slash priest at the same time, so to speak. And he had great power. He opposed Hellenism significantly. He wanted nothing to do with it, and he was trying to lead Judah away from it. Therefore, he also opposed Seleucid rule, because the Seleucids oppressed them and tried to Hellenize them more than any other culture ever had. In 175 BC, Jason, who was Onias' third brother, gave Antiochus IV a large bribe and promised him that he would support Hellenism. Antiochus IV agreed and deposed Onias III. So this is where everything changed. Because remember, the high priest is supposed to be from the line of Zadok. We've always had high priests. Things are going to slowly change. Because right now we have Onias III, we don't know him too much as his moral character, but what we've seen from him, he, he, he's trying to worship God. He's trying to oppose the Greek culture that's coming into Judaism. He emphasizes the Bible, and he is the descendant of Zadok and has the right to be priest. His brother, who technically is the descendant of Zadok, has the right to be priest, pays to become priest, but the problem is now he's becoming priest through bribery. He's basically saying, I will be priest, make me priest, and I will give you lots of money, which is not a godly way to become priest, and I will encourage the paganism and the moral corruption of Greek to come into the Jewish people of God. 
And so, not that that's never happened before. We've seen this in the Bible, where priests have been corrupt. But it's new for this time period. And so he becomes priest. Then later, in 172 BC, Melanus, who was not of the high priestly family, he was not a Levite, bribed Antiochus IV to make him high priest. Onias III discovered that Melanus had stolen gold items from the temple. Onias III made a public protest about this, and Melanus killed him in 171 BC. So now we're changing. We're now with another guy who's like, hey, I think, well, if you can bribe somebody to become priest, I'll become priest. Now remember, it's not just about priests, it's political power too. And so now for the first time ever, we have a non-Levite as priest. And that's never happened before. Maybe in minor cases and little areas of Judah, but not over the entire nation of Israel. So he's still Jewish, but he's not Levitical. And he's doing it for the money. He's promoting Hellenism. And then he kills God's anointed priest. This is most likely the anointed one who was cut off in Daniel chapter um, 9. That was prophesied. We're incrementally being compromised and changing further and further away from pure Judaism. Now, Antiochus IV has no problem with this because he has no morality whatsoever, and he just needs to pay the taxes, so pay me whatever you want. I'll put you into power, and I'll trade you out in a month if you want, because if you give me more money, because I need money. In 169 BC, Antiochus IV decided to march his superior army towards Egypt in order to take it for himself. He believed that he was strong enough to defeat the Ptolemies, and if he could take over the Ptolemies, he can control the government, the economy, and all the resources of Egypt, and then being strong enough then to fight and overcome the Romans. And that was his goal. So he turned against the Ptolemies, and he went down there. While Ptolemy VI was in battle, his courtiers declared his youngest brother, Ptolemy VII, to be king. Antiochus IV pretended to make a treaty with Ptolemy VI to put him back on the throne. So Ptolemy VI got deposed by his own people, and his brother the seventh, got put into power. So Antiochus saw this as an opportunity. Hey, I'll support you. Let's become best pals, and we'll go down and take your throne back for you, and I'll have a legitimate claim to invading and taking over the throne because I've got the rightful heir here. So they go down. And then he takes the throne back. But Ptolemy Seventh was set up as a king in Memphis, but in actuality became the puppet of Antiochus IV. But Antiochus IV control over Ptolemy VI and Egypt was lost when Cleopatra II got her brothers, Ptolemy VI and Ptolemy II, to reconcile and became co-regents. So this worked out really well, but their sister, Cleopatra, and remember every female leader over this time is called Cleopatra, got them to reconcile which ruined Antiochus IV's plans. He then returned to Israel, and he killed a lot of Jews because he was angry, and he didn't know what else to do but kick the Jews. So he comes back, he kills a lot of Jews, and he robs the temple because he lost a lot of money in this venture. His motives are not really clear, but my guess, like I mentioned before, is he's a spoiled little entitled brat that's always got whatever he wanted. He's narcissistic, and he just got disciplined, so to speak, and he's angry, and he can't kick Ptolemy, so he decides to kick the dog, and the dog, so to speak, is Israel. And so he's just taking his anger on them like a spoiled little child does. Antiochus IV decided to attack Egypt again, 
But when he arrived with his army, he was met in Alexandria by the Roman consul Gaius Populus Lanus. Gaius Populus ordered him to leave, but Antiochus IV tried to stall. So Gaius drew a circle around Antiochus IV and told him not to step out of the circle until he had made a decision. Humiliated by this and knowing he could not defeat Rome, he returned home. So this time he shows up and Rome's there. And they draw a circle. And we mentioned this already before when we did the Daniel study, but this is where we get the idea of drawing a line in the sand. And you're either with us or you're against us. And it comes from this moment in history. And they basically said, go home, pay the tax, don't come back down here again. And he knew he couldn't stop Rome because he needed Ptolemy's resources to do that. And Rome beat him to it. So now he's really angry. He's been defeated in Egypt twice now. He's incredibly angry. Now Jason, the brother of Aeneas III, who paid to become priest, but then was ousted by Melanus, who was not a Levite, heard that Antiochus IV had been killed in Egypt. So he spread the rumor that Antiochus IV has been killed in Egypt. We're free from Antiochus IV. So he begins to lead a rebellion with, against Jerusalem, with thousands of men against Melanus to take his priesthood back and to take over the citadel in um, to take over Jerusalem there. Melanus refuses to give up and he runs to the citadel for protection. Though Jason killed many supporters of Antiochus IV, he failed to take the city and eventually fled to Amman. Amman is the nation on the eastern side of the Jordan River. When Antiochus IV heard of the revolt, he sent an army to crush it not realizing that it was already over. Okay, so this rebellion rose up and then failed miserably before Antiochus IV ever got back. Many of the people who led the rebellion thought Antiochus IV was dead. Antiochus is angry that he got defeated by Rome, so he decides he's going to crush this rebellion, but doesn't realize it's not happening anymore, but he's still angry. So he comes in and he just slaughters lots of lots of people. His general Apollonius pretended to come in peace to rescue the city from the Jason people, the rebellion, but attacked the city on the Sabbath, which the Jews believe that they're not allowed to have any arms or weapons or fight on the Sabbath. So he took advantage of that. He slaughtered thousands of people. The, 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 the people write about the streets flowing with blood, that there were so many people. The city walls were torn down and the citadel was built and many pro-Seleucid Jews fought against their own people and served in the citadel. So it became like a civil war. Pro-Jews or pro-Greeks and anti-Greeks began to fight against each other, and it became this civil war bloodshed. Antiochus IV is now angry. He forbids all Jewish practices and festivals on pain of death. He stopped the daily offerings in the temple. No longer can you make sacrifices every morning and every evening like the law required. He banned circumcision, membership into the Abrahamic covenant, and he burned all copies of the Torah that he could find, all the scriptures. Altars to his gods were set up throughout the entire land, and pigs, which were unclean animals, were sacrificed on them on a daily basis. In December 16, 168 BC, he set up an idol to Zeus, also known as the Syrian god Baal Shaman, the Lord of Heaven, in the temple of Yahweh, and made sacrifices of Zeus on the altar in the temple. This is called the abomination of desolation of Daniel 11, verse 31. 
Many Jews compromised their beliefs and joined the pagan practices because they didn't want to die. But there were also many Jews who resisted this Hellenization and this pagan practices. So at this point, many Jews capitulated to Hellenism. They gave in. Because as though many Jews were resisting Hellenism and said, that's not coming into my house, we're not watching those theaters, so to speak, we're not doing that. When they were going to be killed if they did not adopt Hellenistic practices, or they were going to be killed if they tried to sacrifice to Yahweh, they were going to be killed if they didn't sacrifice to Zeus, that changed the game. And we know many, many humans will resist things that are not godly, but the minute they're going to be killed, they'll give up that fight. But there's some humans who are willing to fight to resist it even to the point of death. So this meant that the people who embraced Hellenism increased drastically because they prefer not to die. And that's the pain that Antiochus IV brought. In fact, Antiochus IV would begin to go to cities, not he personally, but his delegation soldiers, and require the leaders of each city to sacrifice a pig to Zeus in their city, and all the people's city watched this happen. And many cities capitulated and did it because they didn't want to die, because the soldiers were there. And so he really began to oppress them. He also minted coins where he put himself on one side of the coin and the Greek god Apollos on the other side. And he basically put the phrase, God emperor, I am God, bow down to me, so to speak. That's not what the phrase said, but that was the implication. Many Jews began to resist. But the resistance was pretty futile. It was small, negligible, and they didn't really make any difference whatsoever. Until 167 BC. This is where everything is going to change. In 167 BC, representatives of the Seleucid government came to a Judean village of Modena to persuade the priest, the, high, the priest there, Mattathias, of the Hasmonean family, to sacrifice to the pagan gods. Not only did he refuse, but he also slaughtered the Jews, a Jew, who stepped forward to comply, and then he slaughtered the government officials. And then his five sons, he took them and fled into the hills and began a revolt. So Mattathias these delegates come in and they're like, okay, now it's your turn. This is a tiny little village. Okay, just a small number of families. And they come in this village and they say, it's your time to capitulate. Sacrifice to Zeus. Here's the pig. Now, normally they would do this and some Jews would go up and they would begin to do it. But the Maccabees, the book of Maccabees, this is where the Maccabees really begins to cover this history, says that Mattathias began to burn with a zealous rage for Yahweh. Okay, And seeing this happen, he walked up, and he, the soldiers who did not expect anything, probably because nobody has ever resisted them whatsoever, he walked up and he grabbed a sword, and he slaughtered the Jewish people that had gone through up to do it, and then he slaughtered the soldiers, and his five sons were like, yeah, dad, and they like ran into the woods together and began guerrilla warfare tactics. Now, guerrilla warfare tactics are the idea when you're fighting a superior army and you can't take them out. Basically, your goal is not to defeat the enemy. In war, you basically have one army and another army, and they come up against each other, and you try to defeat the other army and win, and basically stand in the field as the victor with no threat, and you take prisoners home and most people are die, or you let them run away. You've won. But in guerrilla warfare tactics, you, you can't. You're just a small ragtag band. This is how... 
um, George Washington and the American Revolution fought the, 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 um, the, the British. He learned a lot from the American Indians. And if you ever watched that movie in the 1980s called Red Dawn with um, Patrick Swayze, like the good one, not the remake that they did recently, there was a lot of guerrilla warfare tactics there. So basically what you do is you just take your ragtag band and you just catch them by surprise, hit them really hard, kill a few people, try to grab a few supplies and run back in the woods and disappear. And before the time they can get themselves organized, you're, you're gone. And you just hit them and hit them and hit them, and your hope is to whittle them down over time. And then you find strategic places, depots and that kind of stuff, and try to destroy them or rob them. And eventually, over time, you just keep coming out of the middle of nowhere when they don't expect it, and you're scattered because you're not all lined up. And it's hard for them to defeat you, like a swarm of flies. It's hard to really just grab one. And so this is what they begin to do over years. And they were highly successful being led by this priestly family. This priestly family just kind of dominating Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV was really struggling and defeating them and holding them back. After Mattathias died, Judas, his eldest son, took over the revolt. And Judas began to really become successful. He began to hit the Seleucids hard time after time. He began to hammer them down. In fact, he was hammering them so successfully, he got the nickname Maccabees, which means the hammer. And so he became known as Judas Maccabees, the hammer. And it actually became known as the Maccabean Revolt. So their family name is the Hasmoneans, but it became known as the Maccabean Revolt, thus first and second Maccabees, because it became known as the Hammer Revolt. He took leadership of the revolt, and he continued this. He proved to be very successful against Tychus IV. Having tasted freedom, the Hasmoneans decided to struggle for total religious and political independence in the Maccabean revolt. Having suffered several defeats in 166 through 165, and Tychus IV withdrew his troops from Judas, troops, and Judas took back the city and restored this temple. So more and more people begin to gather. Once they begin to realize we might not actually die by giving into Hellenism, there's actually a revolt that's being successful. And at this point, it might be better to die revolting when there actually is a chance than to just die needlessly in your village because you refuse. His movement began to grow more and more powerful. And he began to defeat Antiochus after time, after time, after time. And eventually, Antiochus fled and moved up to Syria. Now, Syria is the northern kingdom right above Israel. It's right between the Tigris-Euphrates River and Israel. He moved his forces up there. When he began to flee, a few soldiers stayed behind, and they turned the temple into a barracks. They, they barricaded themselves in the temple, and they began to defend themselves. And so Maccabees began to move against them. And on December 14th, 164 BC, he successfully invaded the temple, killed the people there, and he cleansed the temple. There were pigs' blood in the temple, an idol to Zeus, that kind of stuff, and he cleansed it all out. And this is known as Hanukkah. And the reason they have the menorah for eight branches, and remember the menorah is originally seven branches, according to God in the book of Leviticus, or sorry, in the book of Exodus, and the tabernacle, and then the temple. But it became eight because every single day, the priests were responsible for refilling the oil for the menorah, the light stand. 
And there was only the menorah only held enough oil for one day. And that was according to God. God said it only can hold one day's worth of oil because you have to light it every single day. That's your faithfulness to me. And so only enough oil for one day. Well, it took them, they drove the priests out of the temple and it took them eight days to take the temple back. And then eight days, there was nobody restocking the oil. And so when they got in the candle stand, the menorah was still burning after eight days of not being restocked. And so they took that as a miracle from God, that God was showing that not only had he given them victory, but the menorah had not gone out as that God was with them. And so from that point on, the menorah went from seven branches to eight branches and thus became the celebration of Hanukkah, which is basically removing Hellenism from Judah and taking back the temple and cleansing it and restoring rightful worship back to Yahweh. Even Jesus celebrated Hanukkah during his time in the Gospels. A few years later, or one year later, in 163 BC, Antiochus died pretty much of insanity in Persia. And so that brought an end to Antiochus IV. Now at this point now, the Jews are taking their land back. The idea of being oppressed by a foreign empire seems less likely. The hope of independence is becoming more, becoming greater. Now Jews continued to fight the Seleucids, and he took control of Galilee and Gilead in the north. And there's a map here where you can see their gradual takeover. So the map shows you in the green area is what Judah was under Antiochus IV and everybody before them. But each color that you see is more and more territory that each next successor of the Maccabean revolt is going to take back by a little. And eventually, by the end of the Hasmoneans revolt, they're going to pretty much have all the territory that David pretty much had before the exile. So they became the nation of Israel once again. And from this point on, you can start thinking of them as the nation of Israel and no longer the city-state of Judah. Judas dies in battle. And when he dies in battle, the youngest brother out of the five, Jonathan, takes leadership of the revolt. He succeeds him, becomes the leader. And in 157 BC, the Seleucids made peace with him. They basically said, we will leave and we will give up. Now, they don't have total political independence. It's a treaty. And so there's all these criteria on the treaty. They still kind of have Seleucid rule over them, but the Seleucids have basically agreed to back out. They've agreed not to oppress them. They've agreed to give them like political freedom and independence, but Israel still has to acknowledge the Greeks as Seleucids and pay taxes to them and still recognize them as their rulers and that kind of stuff. So they basically gain a treaty of peace between them where they can gain this land. Now, they haven't completely taken all of Israel back yet during this time period. Later in 152 BC, he was named high priest in Jerusalem as well as administrator of Judah. Now, he is now becoming dangerously close to being king and high priest simultaneously. Now, yes, we've already had the priests who are like the political rulers here, but even the high priest Onias III who was like the political ruler, it, it was more like a prime minister kind of a thing. He didn't have absolute political power. He shared it with the other priesthood kind of stuff. It was more like a congress. And so, yes, he had political power, but he wasn't like a governor 
slash high priest or a king slash high priest. But when Jonathan becomes this, he kind of begins to declare himself as the sole political leader. Not exactly governor or king yet, but pretty close to that. And he makes himself high priest. Now what makes this so wrong is he's not in the family of Levi. And so he has no right to be priests. And the law strictly forbid you be political and religious leaders simultaneously. So at this point, the Hasmoneans are basically violating the law, the very thing that they had set out to protect and to maintain Jewish identity. They are now violating the law in this sense. And over time, they're going to start becoming corrupt because now that they gain power, power is going to corrupt them. And so things are going to begin to change in Judah, which is now becoming Israel over this time. One of the reasons he's probably doing this is remember when we were looking at the prophets, the final post-exilic prophets, especially Zechariah and Malachi, they prophesied a day that the branch, the king of David, the descendant of David, would also be a high priest. And remember, God had them make this crown and put that crown on top of um, on Jonathan, who was the high priest, and to foreshadow the day that the, a guy, a Messiah, would be king and high priest simultaneously. And when that day came, the day was the day that the Messiah came. And the Messiah was going to bring this utopian Jerusalem that would conquer all, in, in, all evil around them. If your family has now successfully, for the first time since 586 B.C., has successfully driven out foreign influences, they have conquered the power. They're beginning to gain independence. The oppression is being lifted. The enemy is being defeated. Israel is being restored. You, it would be easy for you to think, I am the Messiah. The, the Bible predicted the day that a leader would come and conquer the enemies and drive them out. And I'm Jonathan. I'm doing that. And my brother before me did that. And my father before me is doing it. And I am really becoming successful. There could be a sense that he either believes that he is the prophesied Messiah, and that's why he's becoming like king and high priest, or he could be just manipulating that and taking advantage of that and trying to convince the people that he's that so they'll follow him. But either way, what he's basically subtly communicating to everybody is, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. Or at least my family is the Messianic family. Eventually, he was captured by the Seleucids and imprisoned and executed in 143 BC. He was then succeeded by Simon, Mattathias' second son. He continued. He was the last of all the brothers. And he succeeded Jonathan, negotiated Judea's total political independence in 142 BC. For the first time since 586 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered them, well, technically in 501 or 601 BC, because in 601 BC, Nebuchadnezzar made them a puppet nation. In 586, he conquered them and put them in exile. For the first time since then, Israel is now politically free. This is their independence day. They have not been free from foreign power oppression 
since 142 BC. At this point, Simon probably really truly believes that he's the Messiah because he's gained them independence. The prophecy buffs out there talk about the day that one day when Israel becomes an independent nation and they, 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 they become their own power and they, they control the land, that's when the Messiah will come. And they're kind of technically right. The problem is it already happened. <laughs> this is it. This is it. This is what Daniel was talking about. That treaty, that political independence, the rebuilding of the temple. This is the moment. And of course it makes sense because in about 142 years, Jesus is going to come on the scene. And so this is the coming of Jesus that the Bible was talking about, not the second coming in that sense. The Jews were incredibly overwhelmed. In fact, they made him high priest and prince. And this is the time that he actually didn't declare, self-declare himself king and priest simultaneously. The people made him this, which means that either the people saw him like, oh my gosh, is it the Messiah? We'll make him the Messiah. Or his family has already laid down the propaganda over the years that the people were like, oh my gosh, it's true. He actually did it. And they buy into that. Either way, the people were so overjoyed that like Jesus declaring him Hosanna and king, they did the same thing for Simon. And they began to declare him, he's the king, and they made him high priest, and the Messiah is here, so to speak. And they began to do it. So you have to realize that Jesus was not the first person they had done this with. He was not the first person they had done this with and declared him that. And Simon will not be the last either. They began to declare him prince and high priest, and they declared that his family would be priests forever until the faithful prophet would come. Now, this is huge because Jew, the prophecy of the Messiah was that the king, the Messiah, would come from Judah. Genesis 49, the scepter will not depart from you, Judah, until it comes to the one whom it belongs, meaning you from you. We know that David was promised that he be king forever. And so the prophets developed the idea that David's line would be the king. We're also told that only Levites can be priests. At this point, they've basically declared the Hasmonean family to be the kings of Israel and to be the priests forever until the rightful Messiah came. Now, the implications, they probably believe the Messiah is going to come from their family. That he is either him already, or if he dies and proves that he didn't do it, he'll be his descendant. Now, this is big because he is neither Levite, which means he has no right to be priests. He's not from the tribe of Judah, which means they've completely ignored that prophecy. And he's not allowed to be king or high priest simultaneously, unless you're absolutely sure he's the Messiah. There's this ignoring of scripture and prophecy because of political propaganda. And political propaganda is very powerful and can easily trump even the idea that we've become incredibly faithful to the word of God because we don't want to go back into exile and yet it is us who is violating that and declaring him messianic-like status. When Simon dies, his son, John Hyrcanus I, becomes the next king, or the next leader slash high priest. He removed all Seleucid influence and expanded his realm to include Idumea, which we know as Edom. So Edom it was the southeast of Israel, southeast of the Dead Sea, and Edom is the descendant of Esau the Edomites. They're now been renamed Idumea, and this is their new name. And he conquers them, 
putting basically the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, under his rule and power. And so at this point now, all the last remnants of the Seleucids are gone. And Israel has become the nation of Israel that David had once ruled over. It is clear at this point the Hasmoneans were no longer concerned with purification of Israel or the establishment of Yahweh's new Jerusalem, but rather with the building of their own kingdom. From this point on, the Hasmonean leaders demonstrated deplorable character, imitated the Greek rulers their predecessors had fought so hard to remove from Israel. The Hasmoneans had not returned Judea to orthodoxy, but had increased Hellenization. When you read the records of these guys and that kind of stuff, they are thoroughly Hellenized. And the very thing that they set out to conquer and cleanse Israel of, they have themselves become, and they're promoting it big time. And basically what it is is we are in power now, so who cares if we're Hellenized? The, the, what we didn't like was being ruled over. Their father was, a, their, the, the father was opposing the culture and the rule of the pagans. The sons, or the grandson now, is promoting and embracing the culture of the Greeks, but just opposing the rule. And so they have become thoroughly Hellenized. In fact, John is a Greek name. It's a Greek name. That is not a Jewish name. It's a Greek name. And you're like, oh, John the disciple, John the Baptist. Those are all Greek names. Jesus is a Greek name. The Jewish name is Joshua. Mary is the Greek version of Miriam. So it shows you that this is going to be so thoroughly throughout the culture that even if you yourself say, I'm not a pagan, I'm not going to act like them, the problem is that most people have Greek names already. Now, I'm not saying it's morally wrong or a biblical violation to have Greek names. That doesn't make you a Greek pagan. But it just shows you how thoroughly Hellenized everything has become that these really traditional Names, Jewish names that are biblical names, they themselves have even been altered. They themselves have been altered. And the reason there's so many Marys in the gospel is because Miriam was the sister of Moses, and she was a very respected woman. She's a sister of Moses, the formation of Israel. She was a prophetess. It was a very popular name to name your daughters Miriam throughout the years. But of course, by the time Greeks come along, it becomes Mary. And that's why there's so many Marys. So it shows you the popularity of the First Testament people, but also the Hellenization of those ideas. They're corrupt, and it is so obvious as you read that they are corrupt with power. And the way that they conduct themselves morally and their own personal lives, um, affairs and betrayals and adopting the entertainment and the, the nudity and the, the pagan way of thinking and their entertainment and culture and the obsession with money and power as the people in the streets are dying of starvation and being oppressed and they're flaunting all this money and power and building palaces that look like the Greeks and sitting around and being entertained like the Greeks and not helping the people. The difference between them and the rest of the kings of the world, you cannot see any difference as you read these historical accounts of who they are and how they act. And so they really are not really going to change Israel much at all. In fact, many Jews are going to... You've seen this in some cultures when you ask people, like, are you excited that your dictator is being overthrown by this new revolutionary? And they're like, oh, whatever. Different name, same person. Like, when people get overthrown, they just end up 
the people who overthrow the people just end up acting like the previous predecessors in this time. Is at this time that different groups of Jews are going to react to this. And they're going to react to this overly Hellenization. And not just the over-Hellenization of Israel, but the fact that they've become politically independent now and have become Hellenized is going to produce different responses within the Jewish culture and create different Jewish groups. And so the next time we get together, we'll talk about those different Jewish groups that rise up or react to this new political state that exists in Israel. So now here, Israel is finally completely politically free and independent from any foreign oppression. And they have a monarchy, so to speak, that is also the religious leaders. And they have become just as corrupt as Israel. And then all the people in Israel are going to fall in different parts of the spectrum of how they react to this and how they think about it.